in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 13. Joining me today is my fascinating co-host, Patrick Pister. How are you doing today, Patrick? Excellent, Mark. How are you? Doing awesome. And we actually have a guest. Hey, Jeff. Hey, guys. Great to be here with you today. <laughs> yeah. This is Jeff Brown with Spark Cognition. Does I say that right? Yeah. Spark Cognition. Yeah. And so what does Spark do, Jeff? Well, we're an artificial intelligence slash machine learning company. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I bet a lot of people in our audience have no idea what that is. <laughs> Terminators, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Artificial intelligence is a term people are a little bit more familiar with. Machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence or AI. It's really got the most traction right now from a, a commercial standpoint, whether it be in oil and gas or any industry. And so what's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? Well, artificial intelligence generically is just a machine or a computer that's doing something that simulates or looks like the intelligence of a human. Machine learning is a specific technique where you're using algorithms and feature data that you're bringing in to be able to accomplish a task. Okay, got it. And we were talking about this off the mic, but uh, you've been in the industry, only guess since only a couple of years. Yes, yeah, I've, four years. This is my second job that's been related to the oil and gas. Yeah, so the cool thing, you were telling a story about how you notice how important HS&E. Tell the story again about the parking lot. Yeah, yeah, so I tell my wife about this stuff. You know, I, I had a meeting at Southwestern Energy, and you come into their parking garage, and first of all, there are more cones and lines than I've seen anywhere. <laughs> but then as you get up, I think it was on the second floor, you know, I've posted everywhere that 10 miles an hour is the speed limit. But then I see a sign that's giving me a digital readout of what my speed is, and certainly, guys, this wasn't me, but I've heard that if you go over 10, that it'll flash at you. Um, even at 11 miles an hour. So again, not me. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's interesting when people first come to this industry. They they assume that safety and health and environment is not real important. And all of a sudden, they get slapped in the face with it everywhere they go. We, you were talking earlier about every meeting you have, you start with a safety moment. Yeah, yeah. You go to meetings, and it's you're meeting with engineers in an engineering building. I mean, you're as far away from a rig as you possibly could be, but they're starting every meeting talking about safety. Yeah. Um, another example at Southwestern Energy is I've never seen this anywhere else, but signs on a stairway that say three points of contact at all point, at all times. Yep. Trail and hand technique. And we love yeah. our signs. We love reminding you what those safety features are and what your what your responsibilities within the building or site or wherever you are. Yeah. So it's interesting. So the whole reason we have Jeff on the show is because this industry is fundamentally changing the entire industry which includes health safety environment technology is playing more and bigger and more important roles in this industry and it will continue to happen now machine learning artificial intelligence big data analytics nobody's gotten their hand wrapped around it completely yet but the industry as a whole has a big interest in this including people that work in hsne anything that we can do to reduce incidents is something we want to understand so uh, jeff you know, some of the things that you and I talked about a while back was actually really fascinating. Um, you have actually some potential use cases for what y'all do. Yeah, absolutely. There's several use cases for machine learning in the area of HSE and oil and gas. There's lots in oil and gas in general, but even within HSE to try to protect people. 
So one of the most obvious is just being able to predict equipment failures. When equipment fails, it doesn't just cause NPT. It can cause you know, injuries. Uh, people can get hurt. Yeah, and if you're able to predict that failure ahead of time, are you kidding me? That would be huge. Yeah. It's funny because some of the oil field equipment manufacturers, they won't even tell you what the life of some of their equipment is because they, they, don't, they don't want the liability of telling you it's going to last X number of days and it, it falls one short and, and they have a lawsuit on their hands. So actually having something that's going to – the machine itself telling you, hey, I've only got this, this amount of usable life left. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And what's really cool about machine learning as a technique, you know, what most people have been doing up to this point is maybe physics-based models where you have some type of physics-based understanding of the system that you're trying to make a prediction about. Or maybe even just very simple single variable threshold analysis. Like if vibration is getting above a certain point or a temperature gets above a certain level, then maybe there's going to be failure. What's really good about machine learning is it's able to take a tremendously large amount of inputs and a very large amount of data and gain insights that these other methodologies cannot see. Yeah, and it's, it's actually machine learning is above the capacity of a person. A person literally could not monitor all these inputs at the same time and make a logical conclusion. Absolutely right, Mark. Yeah, it, it is so complex. And what machine learning does is it finds these deep hidden patterns and relationships in data that other methods just can't see. You know, one example, um, we have a customer that we do pump failure predictions for. They had some models that they had developed and, you know, they're designers, manufacturers of pumps. This is a company that's been around for a long time. They could predict pump failures in about three to six hours before they occur. Using our technology, we were able to increase that to five to six days. Wow. 20 times greater forewarning using this type of technology. Wow, that's huge. And then also think about the other thing about equipment failure. You're talking about environmental risk, right? You're able to also mitigate that environmental risk for the same reasons. Absolutely. I mean, if you think of like pipelines, you know, with pumps and compressor stations and things like that, the opportunities are huge. Yeah. And we, we talked about the people aspect. I, I know our, our listeners are going to, you know, especially the ones that are afraid of technology and, and machine, machine learning. Is this helping the people that are operating the machines or is this replacing some of them out there? Yeah, that's a great question, Patrick. You know, if you went into it, what you probably initially think is this replaces humans. But what we find in almost all cases that it's augmenting humans. Um, you know, AI is artificial intelligence. There's another term, IA, intelligence augmentation. That's what we find is that most of the times people, when they're implementing this stuff, it's helping humans do their job better. That's, I mean, if you think about that, it's, um, it's, we're moving there no matter what, whether you're going kicking or screaming. So, you know, if, if you want to get ahead of this, um, it, this is a great time to do it. So you also had, you mentioned to me kick detection. That's, that's going to get people's attention. Yeah, absolutely. So that's something that can be catastrophic. Yeah, let me stop you, Jeff. Patrick, what's a kick so our audience knows? A kick is, easiest example, think Macondo, when the well decides to kick back what it's got in there and it's no longer held down by the weight of the mud. I think the weight of the mud is your first line of defense. Right. When you're drilling a hole, you've got to replace it with something, one, so the walls don't cave in, and two, so the oil and gas doesn't come spewing out like the gushers of old. Um, so you have that mud there, but when you get a, an imbalance in the mud versus pressure in the system, that kick's going to come up. And if your blowout printer does, doesn't stop it, it's going to come all the way to the rig floor. Which is what happened in Macondo. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about kick detection. Yeah, so things like that, they're, they're already people who are using science to try to detect that. And they're looking at a handful of variables. You know, I know one would be annular pressure. There's other things that you can look at. But machine learning offers the ability to look at a much larger set of data and perhaps find patterns that you could see well in advance 
of current technology to know that something is going to be happening. Yeah, that that is I, that that almost sounds like science fiction. I know it's not, um, but that that is huge to actually be able to, to, to uh, predict kicks. So is is the software actually doing the prediction, or is it throwing out the data that's allowing the personnel, the driller on the on the floor, to make that decision and you know shut it in? Yeah, good question, Patrick. So <clears throat> first of all, the way the software learns is by getting historical data. So you're training and building these models based on historical data. Then once you've got that, you run it in real time and it's getting that information. And typically on something like this, what you're gonna do is you're gonna have something where it's flagging a human on the floor. And then they're gonna use their subject matter expertise, their experience to be able to validate what they're seeing and perhaps know what's the appropriate action to take in. Depending on how much data you have historically and the variation of that data, you might be able to have it give suggestions of what you need to do. But usually in something like this, you're gonna to wanna to rely on having that experienced human to know what to do when they see that flag that's coming from an artificially intelligent system. And then Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, as the human makes yes or no decisions, the machine learning continues and it gets better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the cool things about the technology is it's dynamic. It's not static. Like a physics-based model, you know, you create this model and it is what it is forever. With machine learning, it learns as it goes. So as it gets feedback on whether it's done good or bad or it sees new situations, conditions change, equipment gets older, all of those things are built into the learning system. It gets better as it goes, more accurate, and more able to predict in a changing environment. Yeah. Can, can you talk more about the historical data that goes into these models? Does it have to be uh, well in a similar basin with similar geology, similar depths, or I guess what, what accuracy does that historical data have to be to, to build an accurate model? Yeah, good question. So the the more data you have, the more examples of failures or whatever it is you're trying to predict, the better the model is going to be at doing that prediction. And you can, if you provided data all from one basin, one type of well, one type of equipment, it's going to be very good at that. If you give it something it's never seen that's very different, it's going to need to learn some. It's not going to be as accurate there. But if you give it a training set that's more broad, it allows it to work in more broad situations. And then as you move to different variables, such as geology, climate, water depth, whatever, it will learn those and incorporate that into what it's doing. And so it gets better and better, in this case, predicting kicks. Absolutely. And so theoretically, if you gave it enough exposure, enough knowledge, it, it could be highly accurate predicting kicks anywhere. Right, right. As you give it more experience, more exposure, more variables, it's going to get broader in its capability to do a prediction. Yeah, and another thing you brought up that I thought was just fascinating is, is other type of drilling issues like stuck pipe. Right, yeah. That's something we've been successful in doing with one customer is being able to predict stuck pipe events. We're able to do it anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours in advance of it. Yeah, that that is, can be expensive. Yeah. <laughs> expensive yeah. and also dangerous, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Um, but being able to predict stuck pipe, once again, it sounds like science fiction. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Like how long did it take y'all to, uh, to, you know, when you engaged, how long did it take you before you got to the point where you're ac accurately predicting stuck pipe? It, um, so on that one, what we did is we got the historical data, and typically with machine learning, whether it's us or somebody else, you get a portion of your data, and that's what you use for training. And then you use the other portion that you hold back, and that's your test data. So we use uh, training data. Typically for us, it's about an 8- to 12-week process to go through that, build all the models, and then it was with that test data that we were able to demonstrate the 30 minutes to 2 hours forewarning. So you basically use that second data set to validate the Correct. work that you did up front. Correct. Yeah. 
And where are you getting your data? Is it just from the client that you're working with? I know a lot of the operators, you know, they keep their data very close to the chest. They don't want all that well information getting out there to the competitors. So how are you getting a robust database of reliable geology and, and, and historical data? Right. So good question. Um, in this particular one, the stuck pipe that I'm talking about, it was with one operator and we just had their data. And typically, for the reason you mentioned, Patrick, people don't want to share data with their competitors. Um, in that case, what we actually worked with was just standard EDR data, um, you know, from the Payson or uh, Todco. That's all the data that we had to use with that. Um, interestingly enough, I had a meeting just a couple weeks ago with an operator, and they asked this question. They said, you know, we have a couple other um, operators that are competition, but that we work with together. Would you be able to work with multiple companies if we pulled data for you? And the answer on that is absolutely. Um, and the more data you have, the better you can do. So if you know operators are working together in a certain area, um, that can be beneficial to them to be able to share data if they're willing to do it. And that's really cool. So we haven't uh, released our predictions for 2017. They'll come out in November. But one of the things I think is going to make it there, especially in the offshore world, is standardization. And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about operators working together to standardize stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think it's a little more challenging if you're talking about, like, how do I optimize the production of a well based on, you know, frack stages, location, sand I'm using, because that's, you know, how can I be more more profitable than my uh, competitor? But for this type of stuff, HS&E, everybody, like we talked about earlier, is wanting the same goal. So I think if there's ever going to be an area where there's going to be sharing between companies, it's going to be in this one because they all want to have more safety for their people. Yeah, that makes total sense. I never I haven't even thought about it that way. So for the operators out there, say it's a small operator that wants to start using your data, what's the minimum threshold of historical data for something like kick detection or stuck pipe? that you really need them to give you before you can make a accurate within some degree of accuracy. Yeah, that's Patrick, that's a it's a good question but it's actually a tough one to answer. So it the answer really is it depends. Um, the more data, the better. Whatever it is you're trying to predict, whether it be a, a failure of a piece of equipment, um, a, a drilling dysfunction or an anomaly, ideally we like to have at least about 10 of those things in the data set. But if we don't have that, we can just simply do what's called anomaly detection, and that is identifying, okay, there's in this data, there's seven different operating states, and then the customer can usually look at it and say, okay, these four are normal, these three are not normal, and then we can start flagging for them anomalous operating states going forward. Yeah, and I would also guess that if the uh, uh, client of yours doesn't have the data they need to accomplish what they're doing, it you could actually start help them start collecting the data. It may not be historical, but you know, at time zero and as and gather as much as you need before you actually come back and do the work. Absolutely. And it can be done two ways. One can be, you know, hey, let's sit down and talk about what data you should be gathering so that you could do this at some point in the future. And it's probably like three to nine months, depending on how, how quickly you're gathering data. It's not a long time. The other is implement something right away and you basically start off with a relatively unintelligent system that's learning from ground zero as it goes. And you build in feedback mechanisms where the humans that are working with the system provide the inputs so that the system is learning as it goes. Wow, it's almost like hiring somebody that doesn't know the job and you train them on the job. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And, and it's so relevant right now because if you think of the great crew change, um, you know, we're losing all these people with all this subject matter expertise and you think of, you know, an area I'm more familiar with from my last job is directional drilling and like you've got these directional drillers who've been doing it for 20, 30 years and it's like you hear people talk about them and they just have the ability to just know and sense 
what's going to happen. And it's because they've built up this capability where they're taking in all these inputs. They don't even necessarily know how they react or with each other, how they relate, but they know what they need to do because of experience. That's exactly how machine learning works. You're not building in a set of rules, you know, if this, then this. You're training it based on historical data. The difference is just that, you know, a computer system using machine learning works 24-7, 365 days a year, never calls in sick, never loses focus, you know, doesn't get tired, et cetera. So I've got an interesting question. If I was, if I was going to start operating in, let's say, the Permian Basin, and I started from scratch, I had nothing, could I come to you and say, what equipment should I use in this region based off of your, your machine learning and the data that you have? Can you tell me what the re- most reliable mud pumps are, the most reliable rig design? If we had... Uh, a greater number of customers were still a relatively new company. We possibly could do that. We'd probably be protected by some agreements <laughs> with customers on sharing a lot of that information. Um, so that may not be the best use of a company like Spark Cognition. <laughs> but you know, Patrick, you know that data is out there in it's not in a public format. But companies like Drilling Info—that's what they are. They're data collectors in the shell place. It may be that somebody else has the data, and then uh, uh, Jeff could get, uh, use that data to actually figure out whatever you're trying to figure yeah, out gain insights from that's really where a company like spark cognition has the ability to add value is finding uh deep insights in very large amounts of data yeah just from my own experience i've been in investigations where there was there's been equipment failures and large oems will not say one way or the other what the useful life is how long was that supposed to operate what what's within its norm bounds they say that took it as is and we're washing our hands of it they really won't let you know what, what a failure rate is going to be so if you're trying to predict what type of equipment to put on your rig you want the data but you want to be able to analyze it yeah yeah and i think where we add a lot of value is with the equipment you have or the equipment you've chosen we can really help you know when you're about to have a problem with your equipment because the thing is is the equipment knows it's okay. just that it's a very complex language that we don't speak machine learning is a way of understanding the language of the machine how hard is it to get your clients to trust the data? Obviously, if they're coming to you, they, they trust you to a certain degree. But if you have the data to show them that this piece of equipment's probably going to go out in five days, you want to you know, shut down to take care of it. And they say, no, we have to produce. Yeah, good question. So there, there is a lot of reticence to trust a computer system on something like this. But the process I described earlier is the typical process of how we would approach it, and that's we build models based on maybe two-thirds to three-quarters of their historical data and say, you keep that other piece and don't show it to us. Then when we've built that, we say, okay, now let's run it through the model and let's see what it says. And when uh, they have three stuck pipe events that they're not telling you about, and you say, okay, here's one, two, and three, and with 30 minutes and up to two hours of forewarning with no false positives, then they become believers. Yeah, I would become a believer. <laughs> so, uh, Jeff, another thing we also talk about is, is like injury databases. Yeah, yeah, uh, great one, Mark. That's And it's very different from what we've talked about. So another area of machine learning and AI is what's called natural language processing. So, you know, you've got the human language. It's very nuanced. And, you know, as an example, you know, this is an application. Uh, oil and gas company has got this very large database of injury reports and where most of the information is is in these free-form text boxes and people write in different ways they abbreviate different things they have maybe different levels of familiarity with the English English language and they're writing these things down the word foot is that referring to a part of a human body or a distance 
And so in this case, we had a customer, they wanted to gain some insights to understand what trends they had, what kind of frequency of injuries. So when they wanted to know uh, two things were what kind of lower body, lower, lower body injuries they had had. And for that, you've got you know, lots of different ways you could describe that, you know, torn ACL, um, I injured my foot. And so to be able to have an intelligent system look at and understand language uh, at a higher, at a much higher level than like typing in, I'm going to search for the word foot in a huge Excel database. So the machine learning actually can read the text and understand what it's trying to say. Yes, it can, it can understand syntax. It can understand from other words nearby whether or not foot is a unit of measurement or whether it's a part of the body. You know, another example is I mentioned uh, in this customer, they were looking at vehicle crashes with animals. And so that's what they were wanting is vehicle accidents that involved animals. And there was one example where it found the road was slippery and my truck hit a deer. So animal wasn't used, vehicle wasn't used, but it, it highlighted words like icy road, slippery, truck, deer. And it figured out that this is a vehicle and animal incident. So the, the machine learning actually read that and understood, even though it, it wasn't looking for keywords, even though the keywords vehicle or animal was not in there anyway, it understood that this involved an animal and a vehicle. Yes, yeah, and what's, what's interesting about it is you mentioned keyword, Mark. In this example, um, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say a keyword search actually found like, let's say, 850 examples of what it was thinking were vehicle and animal-related incidents. Uh, a better methodology found about 500. Cognitive analytics got it down to 350. Wow. So it, it really got you down to the ones you needed to look at. You know, if you're trying to understand what's the frequency, is it getting more, is it getting less, is it a certain part of the country, where do we have this problem? It got rid of, you know, more than half of false positives by as compared to using a simple keyword search. Yeah, and Patrick, think about all of the logs that are out there going back to the you know 20s and 30s that are on paper. To be able to read that and understand it and, and use that data, that's huge. Yeah, and I'm, I'm starting to think, so it, could this help eliminate the, the whole garbage in, garbage out methodology or thought process? Because you have guys in the field, they're putting in the data. They, if they're talking about a foot, feet, lower appendage, they can put in whatever they want. Um, and like you said, keyword searching going out to try and find these things. But you're, you're, what you're saying is the... You know, the machines can go in and understand the syntax of the person, you know, whether it's bub out in the field or somebody in an office building using completely different language. It can go in there and understand what the context of that incident or report or, or whatever it is is actually trying to get across. Yep, absolutely. That's what we're going to do. And keying back on something Mark just mentioned, you, know, you said paper. Um, one of the capabilities of machine learning is the, the ability to pull from documents like paper or PDFs, things like that. It doesn't have to be like in Word or Excel where it actually could search and find those words. You have techniques in machine learning to be able to use OCR, pull that data in, digitize it, and then be able to search stuff when you're not starting with clean electronic data to begin with. Yeah, and OCR is uh, optical character recognition, if anybody wants to know what Thank that you, is. Mark. The other cool thing, though, is you're talking about being able to understand unstructured data in any format, right? It's, it's relatively easy for software to use structured data, but you're you able to use unstructured data. That is enormous. Yes, yeah, and it, it's a huge 
uh, potential benefit of techniques like machine learning and AI is to be able to tap into that unstructured data. And you know, just for the listeners, structured data would be things like data you have in an Excel spreadsheet, numbers that can be easily manipulated or brought into a database. Unstructured data is like emails, images, PDF documents, et cetera, things that are not easily brought into a database. And I know for a fact that this industry struggles <laughs> with unstructured data, both <laughs> from an HSE point of view, from a security point of view, from a historical point of view. Um, the data is there, but it's in 500 different, you know, inboxes and 500 different file cabinets and, you know, warehouses and everything else. Um, Jeff, I want to uh, touch on something else because we're getting close to the end. You and I actually met at the Internet of Things conference. Right. Right. And we ran into uh, James Gordy with Realware who had a wearable. Now that wearable all of a sudden becomes unbelievably valuable when you combine it with machine learning. Absolutely. Yeah. Great, great uh, idea, Mark. Yeah. You know, if you've got, we've got an increased number of wearables and, you know, just even from a commercial standpoint um, or consumer standpoint, rather, you know, you've got uh, Fitbits and other devices like that that you wear and they take all these measurements. They give you insight onto how uh, successful your sleep was. If you think of an oil and gas um, application, a rig site where you've got, uh, you know, a dangerous environment, you have wearables that can monitor a, a person's heart rate, um, perhaps the uh, chemicals in their sweat to know if they're headed towards dehydration. Even things uh, like man down. A lot, of the, yeah. a lot of the tools they carry have an accelerometer, and if you lay down, it alerts somebody that you know, might be, something bad might be happening. Yeah, yeah, you've been hit or you're in an area you shouldn't be or you're getting too close to a piece of equipment. I mean, there's lots of applications when you look at this sensor data. And really, you know, that's one of the things that's driving this, whether it be this example we're talking about, pump failures, kick detection, is that equipment is becoming so much more sensorized now. And that data coming in, you need a technique like machine learning to be able to gain insights from it. Yeah, and that's only increasing, and it's only going to, to increase. So the cost of sensors, the cost of storage, the cost of transportation has all dr dramatically decreased, right? And there's a lot of benefits from wiring these parts and pieces up with sensors so you can see what's going on, but it's only going to exponentially increase the amount of stuff. And like I said, no human and can actually look at all this stuff in real time and make sense of it. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mark. Yeah. So um, this is a good point. Um, Patrick, ready to do the Red Wing Tip of the Week? Yeah, let's do the Red Wing Safety Tip of the Week. Um, I want to talk about hard hats. Uh, just about everybody in the industry wears or has worn a hard hat or will wear a hard hat at some point in their career. Um, and you see a lot of stickers and decals and guys gluing things to them, little, little figurines. And this could actually put you in a, a dangerous place. You're, you're hiding defects to the, to the hard hat. Uh, paint solvents, uh, sticker glue can deteriorate the, the hard hat in those spots. So you're actually not getting the full protection that the hard hats provide. Um, I did find an article from OSHA that, that talks about it, and they come as close as they can to saying don't do it without saying don't do it. So they highly recommend you not put anything on your hard hat without it going as far as saying absolutely don't do it. Yeah, we don't, we don't put anything on our people's hard hats just for that exact reason. Um, good tip of the week. But do put your name on it. Put your first, last name, <laughs> position in pen. Don't put it on a sticker. But uh, yeah. let them know who you are in case, like we are just talking about, if you go to the ground and you're not wearing a sensor, they need to know who you are, what position you're in um, to get you the help you need. Yeah. So, Jeff, is there anything else you want to f uh, finish up with as far as HS&E? Uh, I, you know, I just think, um, you know, the whole reason you wanted to talk, Mark, I think there's great opportunity here in HS&E to use this kind of technology to protect people. Really great stuff, Jeff. I think our audience really learned a lot about how this technology can improve their operations. Now it's time to find out who won Red Wing's offshore bag this week. Our winner is Mark Swindon of Hunter McKenzie. He's the owner over there at Hunter McKenzie LP. So congratulations, Mark.
But if you would like to win your own Red Wing offshore bag, it's really, really cool. Hey, we have to see if maybe we can get Jeff one. I would gotta, love a bag. You got yeah, yeah. to enter to win. <laughs> yeah. It's really easy. No purchase necessary. See official site for rules and details. You simply go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put your information in there and we pull one lucky winner a week. Patrick, let's talk about the LinkedIn group. The LinkedIn group, the oil and gas. Oil and Glass Global Network. Oil and Gas Global. Oil and gas global oh, the, Damn. Oh, <laughs> thanks, Jeff. The, the Oil and Gas Global Network, OGGN, um, is really what I, I forget the name all the time because I just type in OGGN when I'm looking for it online or in the, in the LinkedIn page. But go there, sign up for the group. Uh, you'll hear about our special events. The podcast episodes go live there, so sign up and become part of the group. Yep, all the new stuff we, we do is going to be there first. So if you want to find out what's going on, go sign up. Then leave a review. Jeff, you left us a review, didn't you? I did. Uh, we appreciate that. So be like Jeff. Leave us a review. It helps us uh, climb in the search engine rankings. And, and also what it does is there's so many podcasts out there that people have a hard time finding good ones. The more reviews we have, the more four- and five-star reviews you have, people will see that when they see our review and they go, oh, maybe we should listen to this one. Um, and then if you made it this far, do me a favor. We're growing. We're young. Please, please, please share the show. If you have any of your people that are interested in HSE, any of in operations, um, you know, shoot them an email. Let us know about the show. You can find us on uh, iTunes. You can find us on the web. You can find us in Stitcher. So please, we'll actually put the links in the show notes to make it easier. And speaking of the show notes, any of the stuff that we talked about, the article that Patrick has, we may even have a white paper from Jeff there. All that stuff's in the show notes. So um, go to the website, check out the show notes. Everything's clickable. It makes it really easy. So Jeff, if people want to find out more about you and your company, where should they go? Well, to find out about a company, you could go to sparkcognition.com and you could reach me at jbrown at sparkcognition.com or on LinkedIn. Oh, perfect. Um, Patrick, you ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's get out of here. All right, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Y'all be safe out there. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond.